Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast, or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation, and of course, a little bit of entertainment. Well, have you enjoyed getting out and about since the COVID restrictions eased somewhat here in Ireland? I know I have enjoyed getting out beyond my 5k on the bike and had some fun road trips to Connemara last week with my mum and sister. I haven't looked forward to a picnic so much as I did last week. We announced the winners of the raffle for the Galway Cycle at the weekend. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who donated to my 400 kilometer cycling challenge. Together we raised 2,075 euro for Rosabelle's rooms as part of the Galway Cycle. And in total, almost 50,000 euro has been raised through the event for the charity, which is incredible. You can check out the list of winners on the Try Talking Sport website. Now, there are two challenges you may be interested in taking part in over the coming weeks. The first of these is the Mayo Pink Ribbon Virtual Cycle 300k Your Way in support of the National Breast Cancer Research Institute. Take on the challenge to cycle, run or walk 300 kilometres over the coming weeks with an interactive map of Mayo detailing the distance covered so you make your way through the challenge. The second challenge is the new Share the Load on the Road 670km cycling challenge in support of the work of Cycle Against Suicide. This challenge replaces the annual Cycle Against Suicide event this year and over the next five weeks they are encouraging people to jump on their bikes to explore their county, nominating a buddy to join them whilst raising funds to support their new community buddy programme. For more details on these challenges and to sign up to participate, log on to our website trytalkingsport.com. You may have noticed I've taken a little bit of a break from the Facebook live shows for a few weeks, but they will be back, I promise, with more fabulous guests lined up to share their stories in sport. In the meantime, I am looking forward to the next live edition of the Tri Commute with Helen Murray from the Inside Tri Show taking place on Friday the 30th of April at 7.30am. You can register to join the live audience over on the Tri Talking Sport website. Our guest this month is professional triathlete India Lee, so it should be lots of fun. In this week's episode of the podcast, I was delighted to chat with Hannah Shields. Hannah had been on my radar for a while as a potential guest, so I really was thrilled to finally get the chance to chat with her. Hannah was the first woman from Northern Ireland to summit Mount Everest in May 2007. After the heartbreak of missing out on the summit in 2003, we hear how her journey in sport continued with unique and fascinating opportunities to embrace her passion for life and seizing opportunities with both hands, including the chance to participate in the inaugural Polar Challenge race to the North Pole, where she became the first woman from Ireland to ski to the magnetic North Pole. Hannah took up running at the age of 34 and has represented her club and country at local and international level, winning national and international medals in a wide range of distances. Stepping up to ultra distance and endurance mountain running, she has finished on multiple podiums across her running career. Turning her hand to triathlon as she approached her 50th birthday, she has since raced at all distances in triathlon and has a horde of race titles and medals across duathlon and triathlon from home and abroad. In 2018, Hannah was electrocuted in a freak accident whilst out training on her bike, resulting in some life-changing injuries that have curbed her life professionally and in sport. However, just like every obstacle she has faced in achieving success as an explorer, adventurer and athlete, 
Hannah's courage, determination and positive attitude are strong armoury in conquering this mountain in life she is currently ascending in returning to full health. I was mesmerised listening to Hannah describe some of her adventures. Enjoy this show. I certainly enjoyed recording it. Hannah Shields, welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast on this beautiful sunny Thursday afternoon. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm as high as a kite at the moment because I've just come back from a walk around the Causeway Coast and it was glorious. And I was just so happy to be out and about and to be able to be out and about. So you have to excuse me if I am as high as a kite and I know I can talk quickly and a lot. So uh, you don't actually have a big yardstick that you can actually hit me with. So this is great. Nobody can stop me from talking. Happy no, days. But we are on a Zoom call, which means that I probably could just mute you when I want to talk again myself, you know, when you're still talking. But I don't. I probably. And you know what the funny thing was that uh, lots of people commented when I told them I was interviewing you today. They said, you know, just put on the kettle, have a cup of tea and just let Hannah talk. You can just enjoy the, the, the one sided conversation. So I'm really <laughs> excited about our chat today. Hannah, you've achieved so much in your life to date across sport and before we get into chatting about the journey to Everest, the North Pole, uh, your Ironman, all the different bits and pieces that you've done, um, I'd love to know what you were like as a kid. So were you sporty? Were you academic? You obviously were because you've achieved a lot in your professional career as well as in your sporting career. So bring us right back and tell us what was young Hannah Shields like as a kid? Believe it or not, very quiet. I was the middle one of seven children and I was always known as the quiet one. Can you believe that? For all those doubting Thomases out there who said differently, there was the seven in the family. We were very much everybody together. You know, sort of my parents, one sat at the top of the table, the other sat at the bottom. And I was brought up with the ethos that if you work hard, you can achieve anything. Um, and I really firmly believe that. And I think one of my most profound memories was, um, I remember my parents sitting us in front of the TV in 1969 for the Luna Landings. I am showing my age in there. Thank God nobody can see the face. Um, but I remember kind of going, I was what, five and a half going, I was not interested in this. But my mum and dad were very much, this is monumental. You will watch this because you can say that you have seen this happen. And I think it was more the very next night I was standing out with my dad looking up at the moon. And my dad was, I could see he was just in complete awe. He just turned around to me and he said, there's two men up there. And then it was the next thing that really struck me. He just turned around to me and he says, if you work hard, I, he said, I really believe that you can do whatever you want. And I think because you know, it was my dad, I idolised my dad anyway. I kind of went, well, yeah. And so we were always brought up with that ethos. You know, nothing comes easy to you. Um, my parents were always, there will be setbacks, but you know, if you want it, you will have to just keep working at it. So I think that, that was something I was always brought up with. Don't expect it first time. You know, sort of, but if you put the hard work in, then you may be lucky and get it, whether it be in education, whether it be sport. But as a child, like, I mean, we lived out in the countryside. Oh, my Lord. In the summer, my mum had a bell because you know, sort of, we just disappeared after breakfast in the morning. And the only time you actually came back to the house was to be fed. And then you disappeared again. 
And I remember at you know, 11 years old, wanting to cycle, or wanted to go down to Port Stewart, which was, what, uh, 29 miles away. And my mum went, well, get on your bike. And I went, okay. So I got my bicycle at 11 years old, tiddled away down to Port Stewart, had a wonderful wee day with two of my buddies, and then cycled back up again. So that was the kind of life that we had because we were out in the country. There was no big you know, sort of a service. And certainly my mum and dad were working and my dad was a pharmacist. So you know, sort of, there was nobody to lift and lay you, you know, wherever you wanted to go. If you wanted to go, you either had to walk or cycle. You wouldn't do but I still days. wasn't very good on the bike. Oh, believe you me. You wouldn't do something like that these days. And, you know, this is where I think that we were very privileged, that we were, we had a childhood that we were allowed to go out and do those madcap things. The roads were not as busy as they are now. You know, so I don't know whether I would encourage an 11-year-old to go out and do that because it's a different world. And so I, I, I do really believe that we were very privileged, that we were also allowed to be children that there was none of this social media that you had to pretend to be something that you were not. Um, you just lived. You, ju- you just lived and you got on with it. Yeah, you had your fights with your brothers and sisters, but you know, sort of, they were your family. You made up for it very quickly and that was it. You just got on with it. So where did the interest in sport come from then? Were you sporty as a kid in school or were you very much on the academic side? A bit of both. And I was music as well. You know, sort of, I... And that was, you know, sort of, I, I learned very early on at 11, you know, sort of, I, I chose to go to boarding school because at that time, again, there, even though the school was only in Port Stewart, you know, sort of, there was no buses that went there. You know, sort of, you had to take multiple buses. And by the time I would have got back, I would have missed all the sports. And I knew, even as a kid, I loved playing with the fellas. And just in case anybody says any differently, it was not like that. I just thought that they had a much more exciting time. You know, we were climbing trees, we were doing all these things, but because I was the girl in the midst of all of them, I found I had to run faster, climb higher, push further, just to be part of the gang of the lads. And so I suppose that's where that came through, that if, you know, if I wanted to do something, that I was always going to have to keep pushing myself. And I went to school, I was good. Again, I worked hard at all the sports. I played hockey, I played badminton, I played squash. You know, sort of. Basically, I had a PE teacher that looked at me and he said, you've got two legs, two arms and a heart, get in there. And so he just put me in every single team and I just put 100% into it because that's I, I love my sport. And it was a great way of retreating because I worked hard, I studied hard. I loved my music, absolutely. And my sister and myself, we played actually to a very high level. I got my grade eight in piano and cello and flute. So at one stage it was, was I going to be a musician? Was it going to be academic? Sport was really not one of the things, but I still loved it. So I, I learned early on to be able to give each equal measure for what I needed to do. When you think about how we as athletes in our adult life try and balance life and work and training and our sport and then you think of you as a young girl at a high level across sport music school and having the maturity at a young age to be able to excel at all of them it's quite incredible 
that's discipline. That was a discipline my parents always told us. You know, sort of again, when you put that work, the hard work in, but it has to be hard work because I was doing so much. It had to be very focused for that thing. And you know, sort of, I couldn't waste time. And I sort of, if I was studying, it was hard work, and it was proper work for what I needed to get the grades for. Same with the music, and same for the sport. So again, it taught me to be quite disciplined, I suppose, very early on. Talk to me a little bit about your professional career, because you you are a surgeon, but you're also a dentist. And I, I can't pronounce the, is it myofascial? Mac, Mac, I can't Mac pronounce Mac it. <laughs> no, what had actually happened was I qualified as a dentist and I thought I had my life all set out before me. I thought I was going to get married, have a squad of kids because I was one of seven children. I thought that's what I was going to have for myself. And then it was one of my consultants who was a surgeon um, and I admired him greatly. He turned around to me just before I was about to qualify and he said, I really think that you should look at the maxillofacial route. And he says, and I think that you will excel in it and you will enjoy it and you will use it to travel. And because, again, he had that belief in me, I went, well, why not? And it's sort of, what's the worst thing that can happen? I don't like it. It's not the end of the world. And I sort of, so I went on and I sort of did my first job and he was absolutely right. I adored it. And so I worked all over uh, England. And again, it was a very scary thing because I had trained to pull and full teeth, you know, sort of make dentures. That was my four and a half years of training. Yes, I did my first couple of years along with the medics. So I did my anatomy and physiology all with the medical students in Manchester. It was quite a unique place like that. Um, But I was going into a job where there were patients who had cancer the you next know, sort of multiple injuries, you know, road traffic accidents. And I was sitting there looking at them going, oh, my God. And again, I had great consultants that turned around. And one of the best advice, one of the first consultants said to me, when you will make mistakes. He said, but what I need from you is that you learn from those mistakes and you don't make them again. And I think that that became very, that I just brought that with me everywhere. I went, yes, I'm going to make mistakes. And if I don't know, ask so I was always very much in it sort of being proactive and I always thought there's no such thing as a stupid question because if I don't know it well that's important for me for this patient so I ask and if I make a mistake he taught us to be honest about it I learned from it so that I never made that again and I find that really good in my sports as well it, it just was able to marry on both sides particularly in like sort of that whole thing of whenever I started learning how to climb and doing all these different things. I'm like, you don't want to make a mistake whenever you're climbing. You fall, you know, you can die. So whenever I started, I, well, I suppose we'll get on to that. But then, unfortunately, I was going back for my medical because you have to be qualified as a doctor and a dentist. And I got multiple organ failure. Um, and that was a very hard time in my life because I was a big high achiever. You know, like sort of I was, you work hard, you know, you'll get there. Um, that knocked me. That knocked me a lot. We still don't know why. Um, just liver, heart, kidney, all you know, lungs all started to pack up in me. Um, so I was in and out of hospital on and off for six months. Um, at that time, and I'm, again, this I suppose is a number of years ago, nobody ever talked about mental health. It was kind of one of those things you whispered 
And somebody would say, oh, they're in this very famous place up here was Grantia, you know, they're in Grantia. And then that sharp and take a breath. So I was very much, you know, sort of, I'm a strong person. I can deal with this. And I remember discharging myself from hospital, I think, for about the fifth time, because I knew I needed just to get out of the hospital for a change. Um, I remember my younger brother had to clean me whenever I came out of the toilet. Um, That night, I remember going to bed going, if this is my life, I don't want to live this anymore. And that really shook me. Not that I was going to do anything, but that I had even thought that. And I suppose for the first time, I thought, I had to be honest with myself going, you're not coping with this. Everybody, whenever they ask me, why are you? I always had this fixed grin on my face going, I'm fine, I'm fine. But inside, I was in pieces. And so that next morning, I still remember coming down and saying to my parents, "Uh, I'm struggling, I'm not coping. Um, and crying like this. And do you know what? It even just saying that, it it I suppose it took a lot of courage for me because I I was scared that I was going to be judged by my parents, that I wasn't this strong person. And they were wonderful. They were wonderful. Um and yeah, that was that was the start of my recovery. And I'll be very honest with that because it was the first time. I was honest to myself and going from then on in, it really made me realise that I had to look after myself mentally as much as I have to look after myself you know, physically, because that was a low point. Because, yeah, again, it was one of those times when I couldn't do anything. I couldn't work. And then I had wonderful boss. I came back uh, to Northern Ireland to work as a general dental practitioner because I had to earn money. The famous Jerry Turbrick, everybody in the triathlon world would know Jerry. I couldn't have gone into a more nurturing place to work. And they were wonderful because there was a couple of times that I ended up back in hospital again. And Jerry and Paul were wonderful. There was no demands on me. They just went, you just get better. You just get better. And um, then there was probably about six months into the job, I saw this thing of uh, looking for people to go out to Everest with the first Irish expedition. And this was, I suppose, 1992. And, you know, sort of, I just went, I remember going down that night, listening to Dawson, meeting all the guys. And I knew in my gut, that's what I wanted to do. That's what I had to do. Um, Because I did try to illegally get into Tibet, shouldn't say that, in 89 and 91. I was quite worried whenever I went back in again. I was going, thank God they didn't have technology because I wouldn't have been allowed back into the country. Before um, we before we talk about Everest, can I just come back to that point, that low point in your life? Do you think that when you hit that rock bottom point and kind of turned around and realised that you had your life to live beyond what you were going to at the time, that that was part of the catalyst to just literally embrace life and and whatever threw at you, you could handle and just go and scale the height of whatever you could to prove that you could be you again. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know what I wanted. I was, I had no idea what I was capable of doing, but I knew that I really did feel that I was getting a second chance at life. Um, So I was going to grab it. I was going to grab it with both hands and run with it to the extreme. 
let's talk about Everest. So before we talk about actually getting there, had you an interest in the mountain before or mountain climbing or anything before seeing this program? Well, what had actually happened was whenever I was at boarding school, like we had three hours of compulsory study every single night. God, I must have been a really intense child. But I was picking up books and reading them. I was reading all about you know, the Everest Mountains, you know, sort of uh, Tom Crean, you know, sort of Shackleton Polar. I, I loved reading about all these big extreme you know, expeditions, anything to do with lunar landings, the Apollo missions. But they were all written by men for men. You know, sort of, so I never envisaged that a young girl from Northern Ireland could do these things. But I just loved, I just loved the thought of it. Like there was this, I remember seeing um, Jacques Cousteau in his undersea world um, the first time in colour. And I remember looking at the TV going, I'm going to do that. And again, in 1969, whenever they were just uncovering Machu Picchu, I remember seeing this on black and white TV. And I remember just looking at it going, I'm going to do that. So unbeknownst to me, I had this wee bucket list building up from I was six, seven years old, that these things that I knew that I was going to do. But up until the time of having that unique sort of illness, I was very focused on career, absolutely and utterly, because I knew I had to focus on it. And again, what happened? made me realise that, no, there's, there's more to life. And so I just went back to that wee, that, that child for me to go, right, that wee bucket list, I'm going to start looking at that. But I still didn't think, I still have to pinch myself at some of the things I've achieved because I, I didn't envisage what I've done. I really didn't. This has just happened with trial and error opportunities that come my way and I've grabbed them with both hands. So let's talk about Everest and the first attempt you had to turn back 100 metres from the summit. What had happened was it, it was a wonderful expedition that we were out. And just in case anybody kind of thinks, why on earth are we are out for two and a half to three months whenever you're trying to climb the mountain? If any of us were put on the summit now, we would all be dead in two and a half minutes. Simply lack of oxygen. So that's one of the big killers. And you have to be out there for about a month for our bodies, people who come from sea level like ourselves, for, I don't want to get, you know, think too much, but red blood cells get more hemoglobin so they can make use of what little oxygen there is. So that takes a month for that to happen. The other big killer out there is the altitude. But here, sea level, the pressure outside our bodies is equal to inside. Happy days. As you start to go up the mountain, the pressure gets less and less. And what actually happens is the fluid inside your body wants to push itself out. So where does it go to? We've actually got natural spaces in our body, which are our lungs and in our brain. And so what actually happens, the fluid gets pushed out into your lungs and your brain. So you either die of what they call pulmonary edema, which is literally drowning in the fluids in your lungs, or cerebral edema, which is where you get the swelling in your brain. And unfortunately, you make a simple mistake. And I mean, that's all it takes, a simple mistake, not clipping back into your rope again or your blind, and you fall. That's you. So those are the big killers whenever you're out there. Um, as an asthmatic, you know, sort of, I was always very conscious 
that you know, sort of that was going to be one of the limiting factor. I'd been hospitalized a couple of times because of my asthma. So I was always quite tentative of that. Um, and again, the other big thing was whenever we first went out, you know, like there was 227 climbers of that, there was only 17 ladies. You were surrounded a lot by big, strong, strapping lads, you know, like, and it was very hard. You could very easily get intimidated by it all. So whenever I first went into base camp, I was intimidated by everything. And I'm a big person for writing lists. So I actually started writing lists of, right, okay, what are the things I'm fearful of? What are going to be my obstacles? What do I have to do today to get through to tomorrow? What do I have to do tomorrow to get through to the next week? So I just kept breaking things down into small, manageable things rather than being completely overwhelmed with it because it's a huge place. And I know I'm not selling this terribly well, but whenever you actually come into base camp at 18,000 feet, you've got this horrible, we call it the Kumbu cough, because the air is so dry, you feel as if you're coughing your guts up the whole time. You lose your appetite. You're not even thinking about eating. You don't want to eat. Um, if you get any infections, there's not enough oxygen to counteract it. So even little cuts in your hand, they never heal. Nothing heals. Antibiotics don't work. So you're going into a place where, hmm, in theory, we really shouldn't be as humans. Um, and as we started to climb up the mountains, we had lots of visitors you know, coming into base camp um, to visit the Irish team, but they brought in bugs. So by the time I was going from my stomach, but I had actually lost a stone in weight within probably about a week because I had really severe vomiting and diarrhea. Claire, unfortunately, Claire O'Leary, my climbing buddy, had to return from camp too. And I was going on for summit and I was already very weak and I was going to one of the points where I just thought I've had enough, I'm going home. And then out of the mist, this you always climb at night time because it's much colder and the uh, ice is much more secure and solid. So I remember this was about you know, sort of five o'clock, the dawn was coming up and I saw all these wee lights coming out of the mist. And it was a joint Indian and Nepalese army expedition that I had been looking after because, again, with our medical training, we were the ones helping to look after people. I got a hug and a kiss from every single one of them. And they sort of went, keep going, Han, keep going. And I have to admit, that made me feel better. I'm a big hugger and a kisser anyway. So, you know, sort of, that was great. And we tried to make a summit bid. There was a really bad storm. We were actually some of the first ones going for summit that night. And there was a Sadar in front of us who's a Nepalese climber. He'd summit it six times. And then there was Pat, myself. And we'd gone to the balcony, which was about 400 metres from the summit. And the next thing I saw a light coming back down and the Sadar just turned around and said, too dangerous, everybody off the mountain. So I wasn't going to question them. I went, this man has summoned it six times, turned back down. So we were back down in the death zone, 26,000 feet. And literally your body is just dying on you in this place. And we'd only got enough oxygen for one summit bed. And I remember you know, sort of Mick, Gerard, Pat and myself, we went, no, we actually feel okay. So we had 24 hours without oxygen in the uh, South Call. I felt as if I had about four gin and tonics in me. I was deliriously happy. So, so happy. So oxygen deprived, but really happy. And I remember somebody turned around to me at base camp and they were doing staffs and they said, right, Hannah, what's two and two? And I remember going, two and two, two and two. I know this. I know this. Two and two. And that's that's seriously what I was like. And I went, okay, that's four. 
that's how much your brain, everything slows down. So we started off that summit, but the next night, my feet were cold. And about two hours into it, I knew I was going to lose my toes at frostbite. I didn't care. I was going for that summit. I thought this was my only chance at this. About another four and a half, five hours into it, my hands, I could not feel up to my elbows. And even trying to get the circulation going, I've been trying to flick my hands around. I'd hit my hand against a rock and all the nuns to me had shattered the bones in my hand. Didn't feel them. And I thought I was being very logical. And this is what summit fever does. So I'm very empathetic to the people who have go because I was going, I've got one chance at this. I'm going to lose my hands. And I went, okay, I'll not be a dentist anymore. I'll retrain to be a pharmacist. I don't need my hands for that. And I was, I thought I was being the most logical person in the world because I wanted that summit. And then I went up to, and I was ahead of all the lads because I couldn't feel my hands, couldn't feel my feet. I remember making a certain move on this rocky face and I fell off twice. And it was the third time I was going for it. There was just a moment of clarity. I went, you're going to kill yourself here. And I went, well, that's my choice. But then there was Ger and Mick climbing behind me and I knew them. I, I knew them. I knew that they would risk their lives to save me. And that was the thing that made me turn around because I went, no, no. Defeat now, turn around, come back, live to come back another day to do this. Um, but yeah, it was shaky. That first step, whenever I turned around, I went, I think that was 23, 25,000 pounds worth wasted. That was the first thing that went through my head. <laughs> and then as I was coming down, I, oh God, I popped three ribs because I was coughing so much. Um, I had a bit of an asthma attack and coughing so much. And then I remember coming over a body um, and it was a fresh body because you know where all of them are and people had climbed over this person and I do not judge them at all, at all, because there's no rescue. He was a Sherpa that was left by his team and as high altitude mountaineers, we accept that there is no rescue whenever you go into this. If a person dies, the body is there, you leave them there. If a person cannot get on their feet, you also have to leave them because you cannot carry them. It's impossible. And, and people may think that's very harsh, but that's reality whenever you're up in the high mountains. And again, I remember putting my hand down to this Sherpa and he moaned. And again, I make no apologies. And I'm like, oh, shit, he's alive. And I'm like, well, what can I do? And I was sort of sitting there with frostbitten hands, frostbitten feet, three cracked ribs. Luckily enough, I had some medication with me and I gave it to him. But then I sat with him because I went, I, I just thought I don't want to leave him. I want to be with him at least until he dies. But he was still kind of living and I was sort of getting colder and colder. And I think this has also had a big profound effect on me. That desire to live, I just wanted to live. And I actually got so angry with him because I went, you're the reason why I'm still here. Now again, I don't suggest you do this too often, but I remember getting up and I thumped him and I kicked him and I thumped him and I kicked him. Now, whether it was the medication that I'd given him or whether it was me actually physically thumping him and kicking him, but it managed to stir his conscience and he was able to stand up. Now, he was snow blind, so he couldn't see. And I did what's known as short roping him. Um, I took him down the mountain until you know, sort of the Sherpas came up. Whenever they, they all kept, everybody was going past and they kept seeing me, all the Sherpas with him, and he was speaking to them. And they were wonderful because 
whenever I brought him down, then I sort of, they all kept saying, you know, you're a sister for life. So that's what I was there for that first time. But it was hard because I felt as if I'd really let myself down, I'd let other people down. But then whenever, you know, like I got off the mountain, I got home and I sat down and I went, no, that's the reason you were there. You'll get a chance at it again. That is just, I'm mesmerised listening to you describing all of that. It's just, it's like nothing any of us will ever realise to even conceptualise being so close to death, so far away from home, nearly at the top of the world and on our way home and having saved somebody's life as well. Like it's, oh my, it's, yeah, it's profound. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, you know, like, sort of when I came back, you know, like, sort of, I, yeah, I felt a wee bit sorry for myself on the plane back on. She didn't do it. How am I going to face everybody? And then I went, oh no, you've learned a lot. First of all, I made another list on the plane back. God, it's such a person. I made a list of what went well and I congratulated myself on that. I went, good, you know a lot. But then I also made a list, very importantly, of the things I felt that I needed to work on. And you know, sort of I went, okay, if I didn't think, and I'll be very honest, if I didn't think I was capable of summiting the mountain, I wouldn't have gone back. I know when you know, sort of you have to just give you know give up and things, but I knew I could do it. And I said there and then, you know, I don't know how many times it will take me, but I will eventually do this. You went back again in 2007. Oh no, before that, I actually I got bits of my toes removed because I did have lovely black toes and frostbitten toes. And I was, I was going told... to try and avoid the conversation around the frostbitten toes. Oh, and... yes. So how many how many toes have you left? Oh, God, no, they're all there. But for two years, I had no toenails and I had the tips of my toes removed and a number of them. And it was really weird. You know, sort of, I, some of the ladies will appreciate this. I, no open toe sandals. I love my shoes. I'm an Imelda Marcus. Um, I'm very high maintenance whenever it comes to shoes and bags. I've got a bedroom full of summer shoes and I have a bedroom full of winter shoes and boots. So the fact that I could not wear some of my lovely Italian shoes broke my heart because I had no toenails it was horrible but anyway I was told not to go anywhere cold for another two years and then I think it was six months down the line I got a phone call from Richard Dunwoody a buddy of mine he's you know sort of one he grand national winner and all the rest he said do you fancy skiing to the north pole I went hell yes <laughs> those are the kind of friends that I have so in, in the end, up, he couldn't do it. And he said, I've got a young friend, he says, that I know would like to do this. And I rang up Chris Chris Van Tolken. He's one of the, oh, he's a doctor. He's now made it in TV. He does a lot with his twin brother. And we couldn't meet up, but we spoke on the phone and we laughed. We were brutally honest with each other about strengths and weaknesses. And luckily enough for both of us, my weaknesses were his strengths and vice versa. And we just laughed. We honestly laughed so much. And we went, yeah, we can do this together. I went over to Heathrow Airport. There was 23 fellas all dressed the same. And I remember kind of going over going, Chris, Chris, Chris. And eventually Chris put up his hand. And first of all, it was a race to the magnetic North Pole. I had never been out in frozen water before. I had never pulled a pulp behind me before. I'd never done cross-country skiing before, but my rationale was that I had survived. I'd been out in the mountains for a long time. 
I wasn't pulling myself into a horrendously deep experience because I've seen other people who've gone out and done that first thing and get complete and utter shock from it and just become incapable of doing anything. Um, I'm not one of these ones that, you know, sort of will say, oh, I've got a sore finger, poor me. And like, if the leg was falling off me and it was still attached, I would still go on if at all possible. So I said that to Chris, I went, if I ask us to stop, and like, that's my honesty, we need to stop because I'm getting cold because I was conscious that I did have some issues. And then there was a team of Marines Arctic Warfare Marines, and it was being organised by the Marines and the SAS lads. And um, I remember kind of going, okay, I think that they're the experts. Let's just follow them, because all these other people have been training for a year for this. Chris and I just went out, and we're just complete and utter numpties on the ice. But we had a laugh. We had an absolute laugh. Do you think that the North Pole Challenge, because you weren't taking it seriously, actually helped with what had happened on Everest the first time, but also gave you more focus for Everest the second time? Do you think that I wasn't focused in that? But Just that it was I'm different, saying. that it was fun. It was something that you were doing for fun as opposed to having... Like when you go to Everest, there's a chance you're going to die. When you go to the North Pole, there's a chance there a you can chance, die. Is there a chance? I suppose there's oh. a chance you can die if you cross the road and yes. the bus hits you. Yeah, you can go. The, the big killer out there is that it's very cold. You do not know how thick the ice is. So you could be skiing along, the ice can be so thin, you fall through it and you pull everything behind you in this pulk and it can sink. And that's how most people actually they drown because they fall through the ice and they can't get out. Um, and then there's also polar bears. And believe you me, polar bears do not drink Coca-Cola, like you see in the Christmas advertisements. And was there any, sign of, was there any sign of Santa Claus out at the North Pole? Oh, yes. Oh, I, Me and Santa, we're on first name terms. I've been up there multiple times. I've even got pictures of him. That's what I used to all the kids for years. I went, I knew Santa. Santa and me, buddies. I love when you say that you know, Chris and I, yes, laughed a lot. But we were exceptionally focused because we knew that the Marines were the team to beat. This was a race. And we weren't, we're going to give them a run for their money. And we, just because people saw us always laughing and joking, I think they kind of went, oh, look at those two, they're just having a laugh in there. We were steely determination because he was an ex-GB rower. So, you know, like, the pair of us kind of went, yeah. So we gave them over the 20, I think it was 24 days, they beat us by an hour and a half. And there was only the five of us that finished it, the Marines and then Chris and myself. So what then happened at the end of that, the, the military lads asked me to come and work with them. And now as I turned around to them and I went, do you know I'm a Northern Irish Catholic and a woman? And they went, yes, Hannah, we know, we know. Like I said, they haven't done the homework. And I just went, where am I going to get this opportunity? The lads had all left their service, but this is what they did. And I was learning from the best. And because I didn't sort of engaged in it, it scared the bejeebus out of me because I ended up even working with the Norwegian Special Forces as a civilian, which has never happened because of this. I learned so much, learned so, so much and that was because I took that one opportunity that scared the bejesus out of me. But I went, I'm never going to get something like this again. So just grab with it and run with it and see how it goes. 
rewind there a second. So did you actually end up working with the military guys? Yeah. I worked with them for about three years. They would have taught me. It was great because they didn't give me any wage, but they paid for all my flights to go up to the Arctic Circle, up to the North Pole, take all these expeditions, go over to Russia. We would have been working with like TV crews and sort of things like, um, I suppose, Top Gear. We trained them all up to do a lot of their Arctic work. I actually worked with one um, alpha male, very strong alpha male uh, sportsman. And we were up and actually in Norway. He turned around to my boss and he said, why do you have that woman? Now, I was training them. He said, why do you have that woman? And it wasn't said in a nice way. And I sort of, I was ready to kill him. And then my boss, Tony, went, Hannah, woman, best thing we ever did. And I just went, yes. And, you know, that's what you would have got sometime in there. It was what it was, you know, sort of. I knew who I was. I, yeah, he always wanted to have races with me just to see how good I was. Um, but, yeah, that's like whenever you're doing triathlons. Fellas don't like to be checked. They have to suck it up sometimes. This is class. Oh, my God. Like, you're just a, a maze of, of hidden surprises. I never knew that about you. That is so cool. Not the alpha male bit, but the fact that you, on the back of what you had achieved, one single decision to go and take on this challenge led to such a change of, of life. And imagine if you had summited Everest and lost your fingers, would you have been able to ski and go to the North Pole? That's where I always say, looking back and some of these things, I just want, it was, it's there for a reason. But like at the time, sometimes whenever you look back and you see if you haven't achieved what you want, you think it's the end of the world. But now what I think this has always made me realise that, you know, if you just run with it and run with all the opportunity, it is amazing what can come out of it. I That's why I still have to pinch myself that all of these things have happened. Again, some of it has happened, I suppose, because I put myself out there to begin with. The, the fellas realised, you know, sort of I was the only, you know, against all the, the male. I just got on with it, you know, sort of never complained. Um I was very honest to them. I remember there was a couple of teams where they had some issues and there was this young lad. And I, I had looked at him in the ice. This was the very first time that I was up. And the fellas turned around and said, oh, his team is going to all pulled out. Will you take him on? And I said, no. And I remember Tony, the, the leader, looked at me and went, uh, right. And I could see Chris looking at me and went, he's not strong enough. You're like, this, I'm not out here to mammy him. You're like, we have a mission we want to give the Marines a run for the money because Chris and I both had said that and he'll slow us down. And I think Tony, at the end of it, he said that was a very brave decision because you knew he was literally pulled off the ice the next day. So we would have had to wait. It was a hard decision, but after that, it made me realise, particularly whenever it comes out in the cold and the extreme places, you make a decision, you just have to stand by it. It may not be popular. What was it like standing on the top of Everest? Oh, oh. I suppose um, an hour and a half before it, um, my contact lens had frozen to my right eye. I was hemorrhaging oxygen. The wee nozzle had, piece had come out and I knew that I was lacking oxygen. So whenever I actually summited, I went, oh, thank goodness. I didn't even want to take any photographs. I didn't want to do anything because I just touched it and I went, oh, 
I suppose whenever I was going for summit that night, uh, the, the night before, uh, there was a body in the guy ropes in my tent. Um, and again, I had medication. I tried to inject him with dexamethasone. That's what we used. Um, but he was dead. Sometimes if you're extreme hypothermia, you can be that in between. But this fellow was dead. And I remember burying him and taking out a lot of his possessions, putting them in a rucksack and sending them down. It was some of the climbers were going down. But there was a picture of a woman, obviously himself and two children. And I remember just, I took that and I went, if I get to the summit, I will put that there for you. And as I was actually going, there's three steps whenever you go up. Um, we were we deliberately, I was climbing with Russians who were amazing, couldn't speak a word of English, could not speak a word of English, and smoked and drank vodka the whole way up the mountain and back down again. They were awesome, hardcore climbers. I had tried to make a move. I had fallen, I had unclipped myself because I was so small. I couldn't make this move, so I had unclipped myself from the safety rope, and I fell. Literally, I was falling to my death. Um, I had oxygen, mask, everything in, in this storm. And I remember just grabbing the door bits of tat ropes that were just hanging there. And to this day, I still do not know, I'll be honest, how I pulled myself back up again. And I remember clipping myself back into the rope again and calling for help. And you know, there was no one, there was no one around me. And I was calling and crying into uh, a face mask and the wind was whistling past me. And at that stage, I just went, you turn back now and come back to live again. Or you, know, you have to gather yourself very quickly. I went, well, you get on with it. And I decided just to get on with it. And whenever I got to the summit, now you can see why I was kind of going, thank God. But more people actually die coming off the mountain than going up because they get into that summit fever mode that I had the first time, that they give everything just to reach the summit. But you have to come back down again. And as I was turning around, because I was hemorrhaging oxygen, I started to cough up blood. So I knew that I was beginning to get pulmonary edema. And again, that desire in me to want to live. You know, normally you stop off in one, two, three camps over about three days on the way back down again. I didn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't afford to do that. So I literally just kept climbing and climbing and climbing down the mountain over the next two days. Bless the Sherpers, word got back down that I was in a bad state. And I remember them coming out to greet me at one of the points at the base of up the north, the North Call. And there was 15 of them to come out to help me. So, yeah. How do you come down off the high of achieving what you had as a as a bucket list as a dream to be the first woman from Northern Ireland to make it to the top of the world how do you come down from that high when you get down to the bottom and recover and realize what you've achieved by the time you get home you've already got something else planned <laughs> as most triathletes know you sit and at the end of a race you will go I will never do that again by the time you get home, you've already got the next race planned. That was, I just remember coming back going, like, yeah. But but how do you even plan something else? You've just reached the top of the world. How, how do you better that? It's, yes, it's nice to be the first. Um, but more so because I want 
to let people see that this is somebody from here, a female from Northern Ireland that can do these things. It's not to be, yeah, I'm by great, I'm the first. No, it's to show that anything is possible if you put the work into it. That's what I'm proud of. That's that to show other people that somebody from Northern Ireland, somebody from Ireland can achieve these. Again, as I always keep saying, took a lot of hard work, trial and error, sometimes just not not reaching the goals to begin with, but being so passionate about it that I wanted to go back and and, and just keeping trying until I succeeded. Um, that that interests me more. And again, I came back and then unfortunately my climbing buddy, Jer, uh, was killed on the mountains. And that was very hard. That was very hard because I loved him dearly. And I didn't want to go onto the mountains again. And he had always said to me about, he always said, you would make a good ultra runner. And I just thought he was trying to get rid of me, to be perfectly honest. He probably was. And so just again, out of a bit of solace that I took myself off and I started running in the mountains. And then, geez, the next thing I knew, I was actually quite good at it. Um, I got my Irish best and I was competing in five-day marathons or well, ultra marathons over the mountains, you know, like sort of uh, hundred mile races. And I loved it. I loved that endurance. I found out, and now that was what I was 44, 45. I found out that I had developed that mindset then that was good to do that. So I loved that. And like after a while, then I kind of went, great, I've done all the things that I wanted to do. So at 50, I decided to do triathlons. I thought, what's this malarkey all about? It's kind of going, what, what are they all talking about? Are they all talk about how hard Iron Man was. I was kind of going, Phew. I was kind of going, I ran five days over the mountains. I had fractured my fib and tib, you know, like on the fourth day, and I still had to go over the Dolomites. And you know, like sort of, I finished the race and I went, that was hard. And so my second race that I ever did, now, I have to admit, I really probably didn't train for it, but I had come off ultra marathons. So I, I was trying to do it in my uh, mountain bike. And then the lads turned around and said, you're not going off to do the next sort of one of the Ironmen in Austria on a mountain bike. So I bought the cheapest bicycle I could get, stuck some handlebars onto the front of it. I think I'd cycled in total 220 miles before I went out. I tried to learn to swim. Um, and then I went out and did the Ironman. And at the end of it, I was kind of going, is this what they all talk about? <laughs> I thought about, except now I have to admit, the swim, I was a wee bit worried about that. I said to the lads, no, I'm going to hang back. I'm going to let everybody else go off. But of course, after the monk came out of the water, given us, after he gave us his blessing, and the tutor went, I was flying in with all the lads because I went, Jesus, get in amongst them. But I got battered and it scared the life out of me because I got pushed under the water and I tried to come back up again. And I couldn't get through because there was just this mass of bodies. And I got pushed back down again. The second time I came up, still couldn't get through. And at this stage, I was getting kicked around quite a lot and I was getting out of breath. And that was another one that I went, second, I don't want to die in this water. And I am not joking, I came up that third time punching my way through. I remember lying on my back and having a wee cry to myself, going, Jesus, I don't want to do this. Turned around and went, right, come on, do one stroke. Right, come on, do two strokes. And then I went, no, get on with it. 
And whenever I got out of the water, I have to admit, I gave them great pleasure because I got out. I was literally coming up, kissing the ground the whole way whenever I came out of the water. You can imagine the compare going, I think that is somebody who was very happy to be out of the water. And I was going, oh, yes! <laughs> I think you could see by my expression, I was quite happy to be finished the swim. Was that the full in uh, in Klagenfurt, in Worthy yes. Lake? Yeah, absolutely oh, fabulous. Gorgeous. Oh, loved it, loved it. But I think what made it, it was one of those things that I went out with a whole group of lads, you know, sort of a whole group of from Derry here, the Northwest Triathlon Club. And of course, me, the numpty, and it sort of, that was just the only one signed up, the ladies. And they had all done a lot of these things before. I was going, what the frick am I getting into? But anyway, it was what it was. I got through it and finished it. And I kind of went, yeah, I don't know what it was for me, but I did a few more, but... No, I, I, I like the, the running. I like the running. Hannah, do you ever get afraid? Afraid? Yeah. Are you scared of anything? I got caught and buried in an avalanche uh, years ago um, and survived it, thanks be to goodness. I didn't realise the effect that it had on me. And I kind of, you know, sort of always tried to stay away from doing anything that was in close spaces and all the rest. So whenever I was being churned about in that water, I had a real, that's why I panicked so much because that all just came flooding back to me. Um, and I still didn't recognise it um, until I actually had gone in and got into astronaut selection process. And I was doing one of the things that you have to do in the astronaut selection. And I was quite astounded how it all came back, that whole getting buried in the avalanche. And whenever I saw myself in the TV, once it came back, I looked at it and I went, I never dealt with that. So that was another time I went to see a clinical psychologist to help me through, work through what had happened and just to try and get me out the other end. So, yeah, I'm fearful at times, but most of the things, I don't have a death wish. I love my life far too much. But most of the things that I do, I'm very disciplined. I do my homework. Um, I know what's needed. Um, I research it. Even whenever I'm racing, I always look at who's the entry field. You know, like, what's the strengths? What their weaknesses? You know, like, you have to put the homework in. So there's not much that scares me. Um, I've broken umpty bones in my body. You know, like, sort of that's yeah. But I think the thing that challenges me is more whenever I can't do what gives me profound pleasure and what I'm passionate about which is my sport and my work um and unfortunately I did have a bad accident a couple of years ago um drama queen me I cycled into a 22,000 volt live wire whenever I was training for Ironman Barcelona I was meant to be doing I got electrocuted because I hit it in the face and propelled me off the bicycle and then can't remember this but obviously I went smack in my head because Thank God I had my helmet on, but I wouldn't go out without my helmet because my helmet was shattered in two places. And I've, I've had a very bad head and neck injury and I had to give up my job, couldn't walk, couldn't, sort of couldn't do anything. That I find more frightening because the consultants kept saying, you know, this could take you two or three years if you're lucky to get over, but you could be living with this for the rest of your life. That was more frightening because I went, I'm here. But I can't, I can't work. I, I can't do my exercise. I can't do my things that I'm passionate about. 
I almost felt that I kind of lost my identity. You know, who was I now? And again, straight away, whenever it became obvious that this was going to be a long-term thing, I asked for psychological help. So I went to a clinical psychologist just to help guide me through those negative thoughts and those those things, because I was always comparing everything I did. And it was always, well, this is what I was doing before. And I, this is useless. I can't even walk 10 steps. This is, I'm beating yourself up about it. So now it's, it's still hard. It's still challenging. Um, but I'll get through it. I'll get through it. You know, it's sort of, but it, it is taking the time that they said, and I may just have to accept that there will be some limitations. But it's not going to stop me from getting out and, again, with a bit of hard work and a bit of practice, get out to where I want to be, where I want to be now with the way that I am. What brings you joy on a daily basis or what makes Hannah smile every day? Oh, I love getting outside. I'm a big outside person. Um, COVID has been very tough because I'm a big hugger. At the beginning of all the races, you should have seen me. I was the one that was going around and hugging everybody. It was wonderful. Human contact. I, I love that. Meeting people, just having a good chat and running and being out with like-minded people that you don't have to explain why you're out there doing these things. You know, sort of, they're just there. They've got the same passions as you. Um, that makes me happy. That makes me happy. And cooking with a glass of wine. Cooking with the glass of wine or oh, God, yeah. The glass, yeah, with the glass of wine in the cooking or both? Oh, both. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, definitely. Both. I, I'll put a certain amount of wine into the food I'm cooking. Oh, God, no. That first glass always has to be chef. But there's a few times, you know, whenever I'm chopping up things, the old fingernail could go into and I'm like, ah, sure, it's just only a wee bit of curtain. Where you go, I won't kill anybody. Oh, probably don't eaten, be telling anybody that. You've probably, you've probably eaten worse on the side of Mount Everest. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Can I ask who have been the most inspirational figures in your life? Oh, without a doubt, my parents. That's who it comes from. That's where I know that ethos of hard work, which is who I am. That, that came from them. And they worked hard all their life. They tried to help us as much as they possibly could. Yeah, and I'm eternally grateful to them because that's that got me onto this path that I am on now. So that was them, absolutely. Hannah, I could have kept on talking to you for another two hours. It's fascinating. I think we might have to come back and do a second episode, but I'm going to finish our conversation here. It's packed a punch. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely phenomenal. And I know Jared Turbot had suggested you coming on the show ages ago and it was Peter Jack in the end who was the catalyst to get you on the show. So huge <laughs> thanks to both of uh, those Ironman athletes and endurance athletes. It's been a breath of fresh air and such a privilege to talk to you today. And I really wish you the very best with your journey back to full health. And I can't wait to see what happens in the future and where you're going to end up. And we never even got to talk about you being an astronaut or a potential astronaut, but that might be for the next episode. Oh, thanks a million, Joanne. And listen, good health to everybody out there, to all the people that are listening. And that's the only thing that I will say to you. you know, we're all very good as athletes looking after our physical health. Make sure that you look after your mental health as well. And um, if you do feel it comes under pressure time, just have somebody that you can talk to. 
it's the best thing that you can do. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. That's try with an I, not a Y. I'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find me across all the social platforms. Pop by, say hi, let me know what you think of the show. And if you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do go back and check out some of our previous episodes. Our guests are simply amazing. Until next time, stay safe, keep smiling, and remember to look for fun and adventure in every day.